0: Section 68 of Mysteries of London, Volume 4 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Reading by Stephen Seidel Mysteries of London, Volume 4, by George W. M. Reynolds The Haunted House in Stamford Street We must now carry our narrative backwards for a few hours in order to explain the incident which has just been described. At the corner of Stamford Street and the Black Friars Road, there are three houses in a most dismantled and dilapidated condition. They seem to have been ravaged by fire, but time and neglect have in reality produced that deplorable appearance. The walls are blackened with accumulated dirt and the state of the windows bears unequivocal evidence to the fact that every pane has been broken, individually and separately, by stones flung from the streets by vagabond boys or other mischievous persons. The fragments of glass that remain seem as if the material never could have been transparent, but had even in its manufacture been stained with an inky dye. The shutters wherewith the casements are closed inside are equally blackened, as if by a smoke as dense as that which proceeds from the funnel of a steam packet or the chimney of a factory. For the last twenty years have these three houses been left thus to fall into ruin. For the fifth part of a century has the work of dilapidation and decay been going on. That they were once inhabited. Is evident from the fact that the blinds, pulled up around their rollers, still remain, but so begrimed with black dirt and dust that it is scarcely possible to believe that they were ever white. The cords used to pull them down, with the tassels at the end, are likewise still there, and totally discolored also. Very mournful is the aspect of these ruined tenements, these indications that they once were comfortable dwellings that cheerful fires once burnt in the grates, that lights streamed from the casements in years gone by, and that the walls echoed to the gay pealing laughter of merry children. Desolate, desolate indeed are these three houses, a disfigurement to the entire vicinity, and having an appearance well calculated to throw a damp upon the spirits even of the most strong-minded of the neighbors there is something picturesque in the aspect which ruins in the open country perhaps on the summit of a hill assumed from gradual decay because there the ivy grows upon the walls and the naked hideousness of dilapidation is concealed by the invasion of a wilderness of shrubs and sweets but when the golden rays of a summer sun pour upon the blackened walls and shattered casements of houses in the midst of a populous city Houses which have dwelling places adjoining them and all around, the effect is somber, sad, and sinister in the extreme. Such is the impression produced by those three houses in Stamford Street. Not that the street itself is otherwise cheerful in aspect. On the contrary, the entire thoroughfare stretching between the Blackfriars and Waterloo Roads is gloomy and inhospitable in aspect. The exterior of the houses has a dinginess of wall and a darkness of window that are unrelieved by the aristocratic grandeur and the richness of curtains inside, which characterize the rows of smoke-dyed dwellings and more fashionable quarters. The inhabitants of Stanford Street are amazingly prone to the letting of lodgings, when they can find any persons willing to take them, but that such plant and easily persuaded tenants, are rare in that quarter, is proved to demonstration by the numbers of cards and bills in the windows announcing furnished apartments to let. It is a curious study, and one that affords matter for speculation, to examine the cards and bills thus displayed. Some are written in a neat feminine hand so small that the passerby must protrude his head far over the railings to enable his vision to decipher the delicate announcements. Others are penned in a bold, coarse hand, and in them, the chances are 10 to one that the word let is spelt with a double T, while others, again, are printed in the types which the experienced eye has no difficulty in tracing to Peel's famed establishment in the new cut. More than half of Stamford Street constantly appears to let. And from all accounts, landlords experience no trifling difficulty in collecting the rents from the occupants of their houses. If you pass along Stamford Street just before quarter day, and at a very early hour in the morning or at a late hour in the night, you will be sure to perceive several vans loading with furniture, for the habit of moonshining it or flitting surreptitiously, is unfortunately of frequent occurrence in that district. But these are not the only indications that the affairs of the inhabitants and lodgers in Stamford Street are far from being in the most blooming condition. The fact may also be gathered from the careworn countenance of the tax gatherer, as he leaves fresh notices at every door, and from the common occurrence of the water being cut off, nor less does the poor rates collector feel his task to be a most unpleasant one. While the tradesmen in the Blackfriars Road wonder, as they look over the ledgers, what the deuce Stamford Street is coming to. Visitors are frequently answered from the area, an unmistakable precaution against the intrusion of sheriff's officers, and even when the butcher delivers his meat, or the baker his bread at the front door, The chain is, in many instances, kept up. Such is the prevalent state of affairs in the long thoroughfare, which we have thus briefly described. But it is with the dilapidated houses, or rather with one of them, that we now have to occupy ourselves. As soon as it was dusk, two men emerged from the miserable rookery constituted by the district of Broadwall and, entering Stamford Street, they proceeded stealthily along until they reached the ruined house, which was next to the dwelling of the Mrs. Theobald. One of the men, a tall, stout, ruffian-like fellow, whom we shall presently describe more particularly, took a key from his pocket and opened the door of the dilapidated tenement, into which he hastily entered his companion closely following him. We should however observe that this ingress was effected at a moment when no other persons were near and that the door was opened and shut in a noiseless manner so that no sound might reach the ears of the occupants of the adjacent dwelling. "Now give us your hand, old feller," said the ruffian-like individual when they were safe inside the passage, because the stairs is summit broke away and the banisters isn't to be trusted. "'Lord, how you tremble! Why, what the hell are you afeard on?' "'Nothing, nothing, my good friend,' was the answer, delivered in a nervous tone. "'Only it's it's so very dark.' "'Ah, dark!' cried the ruffian with a hoarse laugh. "'Why, it were very often dark in a house at night-time where there's no candle alight. "'But perhaps you're afeard of ghostesses,' he continued as he dragged rather than led the nervous old man down the crazy, rotting stairs toward the lower region of the place. And if so, you're in the right quarters to see a spirit. For they do say the young gal which was murdered here walks in her shroud. But for my part, I never see her, and I ain't got no fear of that sort. By the time these words were uttered in a tone of coarse jocularity, The ruffian had conducted his companion to the bottom of the stairs, and, halting at that point, he struck a lucifer match against the wall and lighted a piece of candle which he took from his pocket. He then led the way into the front kitchen of the house, bidding the old man close the door behind him. The place was black all over with accumulated dust and dirt. The ceiling appeared as if it had been originally painted a sable hue and the floor, broken in several parts, conveyed the same impression. The shelves above the dresser were in a most dilapidated condition. Dense cobwebs clung to them, as well as to the corners of the ceiling, like masses of rotten rags. The shutters were closed, and over their entire surface were pasted sheets of thick brown paper, evidently to prevent the light of candles from peeping through their chinks and being noticed in the street. There was an old rickety table in the middle of the kitchen. There were likewise two chairs, which being made of a tough wood had withstood the ravages of time, and an empty beer barrel was placed upright near the table, as if it occasionally served as a third seat. The ruffian stuck the candle in the neck of a bottle, and, opening one of the dresser drawers, he drew forth a bottle and a couple of small tumblers. Then. Placing himself on the barrel, he proceeded in a leisurely manner to light his pipe, while the old man, his companion, sank, nervous and trembling, into one of the Windsor chairs. The reader has no doubt already guessed that these two individuals were Vitriol Bob and Torrens, and if so, the surmise is correct. The latter person needs no description but the former character must be more elaborately dealt with on the present occasion. He was indeed, as Jack Riley had represented him, one of the greatest miscreants that ever disgraced humanity, not only in reality, but also in personal appearance. Of tall stature, athletic frame, and muscular build, he possessed vast physical strength. He was about 36 years of age, His countenance was naturally ugly, even to repulsiveness, but huge black whiskers meeting under his chin rendered it positively ferocious, and the small, dark, reptile-like eyes glared from beneath thick, overhanging brows. His lips were remarkably coarse and of a livid hue, and his nose, broken in the middle, had a deep indentation giving an appearance of death's head flatness to the broad countenance. His apparel consisted of a seedy suit of black, a hat with very wide brims meant even to slouching, and a pair of heavy Wellington boots. And in his hand he carried a thick stick with a huge knob at one end and a massive ferrule at the other. This was his life preserver, but he seldom had occasion to use it for his proceedings were usually of the savage and diabolical nature described by the doctor and whence he derived the appellation of vitriol Bob. This terrible individual was well known to the police, but those functionaries trembled at the idea of molesting him. They would have experienced no such dread had his defensive weapons been confined to life preservers or pistols. BUT THERE WAS SOMETHING SO HORRIBLE IN THE THOUGHT OF HAVING A BOTTLE OF BURNING, BLINDING FLUID BROKEN OVER THE COUNTENANCE THAT THE OFFICERS SHUDDERED AT THE BARE IDEA OF TACKLING VITRIOL BOB. THUS, WHENEVER INFORMATION WAS GIVEN ON SOME NEFARIOUS DEED WHICH HE HAD ATTEMPTED OR PERPETRATED, THE POLICE TOOK VERY GOOD CARE TO SEARCH FOR HIM WHERE THEY KNEW HE WAS NOT TO BE FOUND and if they even met him in one of the by-streets or obscure alleys on the Surrey side of the metropolis, the quarter in which he chiefly honored with his presence, they were suddenly seized with an inclination to look steadfastly into a picture-shop, or gaze up abstractedly at the sky until he had passed. Vitriol Bob knew that he was an object of terror to the functionaries of justice in general, But he was also well aware that there were exceptions to the rule, and that amongst so large a body as the police force, some few individuals would pounce upon him at all risks. In fact, the impunity he enjoyed was not so completely assured as to render precaution unnecessary, and there was, moreover, such a thing as being taken by surprise. For these reasons, he accordingly made use of one of the haunted houses, for so they were denominated, as a place of concealment whenever he had committed a deed calculated to lead to the institution of unpleasant inquiries. Such was the individual whom we now find in company with Torrens. The circumstance that threw them together in the first instant will presently transpire through the medium of the conversation that took place as soon as they were seated in the kitchen of the haunted house. "'Well, here we are safe at last, old feller,' cried Vitriol Bob, puffing deliberately his pipe, as if he savored deliciously the soothing influences of the tobacco. My goals, is one of the best larks I ever was engaged in. "'Such a lot of tin, and so easily got.' Two thousand seven hundred apiece, eh? said Torrens, eyeing his companion with nervous suspense, as if he were eager to assure himself that a fair and equitable division of the booty would take place. Ah! observed the ruffian in a complacent manner, as he filled the two tumblers with brandy from the black bottle. Drink! and he emptied one of the glasses at a drop, just as if it were a mere thimbleful of the fiery liquid. It was a good job, old feller, he continued after a short pause, that you fell in with such a prime chap as I am, or rather, it was fortunate that I lodged in the same house, and as I came in heard you moaning and groaning away in your cellar. It was also lucky that you let me worm out of you all that had happened, although you was precious cherry of making a confidant of me. You remember I couldn't believe you had fussed i looked on you as a perfect madman thinks i to myself there's a precious lunatic just scaped out of bedlam for how was i to fancy that you'd rarely been robbed of such an enormous amount living in a cellar as you was but you believed me at last you saw that it was all true and correct exclaimed torrance perceiving that it suited the man's humor to talk on the subject well i did returned vitriol bob and now he added tapping his breeches pocket significantly i have got plenty of proof that you didn't tell no lies but lord bless ye, you could have done nothing without me you would have sat down quietly under your loss but i told you that i'd find the old woman out if so be she was in london at all and so i did the description you gave me of her was not to be mistaken especially by a gentleman of experience like myself. I went about all over London looking for her, and then behold ye, arter all, she's living within a stone's throw of us, as one may say. By goals, I shall never forget how my heart jumped in my bosom when I clapped eyes on her yesterday as she came out of the coffee house. But you don't know how I found out that she actually lived there no i do not said torrens observing that his companion bent upon him a look of mysterious importance as much to invite a query that should furnish him with the opportunity of giving an explanation relative to the point alluded to how did it happen then why when i see the old woman come out of the coffee-house i went straight away to my blue one. that's pig-faced polly as she's called And I tells her to go to the place, take tea and toast, and wait till she's found out whether the old woman lived there or not. But I orders Polly not to make inquiries for fear of exciting suspicion. Well, my gal did as I told her, and waited and waited a good long time, and when she'd had three teas and four or five buttered toastesses, she sees the old woman come in, and she hears the landlady come out and say, Here's your key, Mrs. Mortimer. Then up goes Mrs. Mortimer, for such her name seems to be, to a room. And pig-faced Paul returns to me with intelligence. I know that my game was now safe enough. And it was me which devised the plan of our going as officers with a search warrant when we'd watched the old woman leave the coffee house this morning. Yes, yes, I know that you did it all said torrens terribly alarmed lest he who experienced the lion's share of the trouble should now claim the lion's share of the booty but how long shall we be obliged to remain here i am in a hurry to get away with my share my fair share of my own money your own money indeed ejaculated vitriol bob with a chuckling laugh huh. was it urine when mother mortimer had it safe in her own box and I should just like to know how you fussed come by it. Not honestly, I'll swear, old feller. Such a seedy-looking cove living in the way you was couldn't have got near upon six thousand pounds by what's called legitimate means. But that's neither here nor there. I don't care two figs how you got the tin. And if I ask no questions, I shan't have no lies told me. One thing is very certain. "'but I've got it now.' "'But surely, you, you surely, my dear friend, you,' "'stammered Torrance, absolutely aghast at the idea "'of still remaining a beggar. "'Come, let's have no more of this dribbling nonsense,' "'interrupted vitriol Bob, in a tone of unmitigated contempt. "'Then, as he refilled and relighted his pipe, he observed, "'Why, you have been in a fidget and a stew all day.' ever since we secured the swag at the coffeehouse. Don't you see, my dear feller, that people in our situations must act with something like common prudence? The old woman may rouse hell's delight about her loss. And that was why I thought we'd better keep ourselves scarce for a time. So I made you stay close with me at the flash lodging can in the mint and all the afternoon till it was dusk. Then I brought you here, and here, added Vitriol Bob, we are safe now, because only Pig-Faced Pole, Jack Riley, and one or two others of my pals knows anything about this place, being my haunt when I'm afeard of getting into trouble. And there's no danger of them splitting on us. So far from that, the Pig-Faced will be sure to come here presently when she finds I don't visit her own quarters this evening and she'll bring a basket of Prague along with her, so that we shall have a jolly good supper in due time. Drink, old feller. Thus speaking, the ruffian refilled his own tumbler and pushed the brandy bottle across the dirty table to Torrens, who did not, however, touch it. For his glass was only half emptied, and he experienced such lively sensations of alarm that he felt as if his brain were reeling, and his intellects were leaving him. There he was, a feeble, helpless, weak old man, entirely in the power of an individual whom he knew to be of the most desperate character, but with whom he had joined in companionship only through the hope of recovering at least one half of that treasure, to gain which in the first place he had imbrued his hands in blood. There he was, alone with that miscreant in a place the aspect of which was sufficient to fill his attenuated soul with the gloomiest thoughts and the most melancholy forebodings, alone with a demon in human shape, in a ruined and desolate tenement, to augment the cheerless influence of which superstition had lent its aid, alone with a very fiend in a haunt, the ominous features of which were dimly shadowed forth and rendered more hideous, by the dull, glimmering light of the solitary candle with its long wick and sickly flame. Well, what are you thinking of, and why don't you drink, were the words which, suddenly falling on the old man's ears after a pause, awoke him as if it were from a lethargy, a lethargy, however, in which the mind had been painfully active, though the body was motionless, petrified. I I was wondering how long we should have to remain here, stammered Torrens, starting as if shaken by a strong spasm or moved by an electric shock. I I asked you the question just now, and and you did not give me the reply. Well, it all depends, my fine feller, answered Vitriol Bob. Three or four days, perhaps. Three or four days, almost shrieked Torrens. I shall die if I linger so long in this horrible place. Die indeed, ejaculated the ruffian in a contemptuous tone, Why, Lord bless you, I've stayed here for three weeks at a time afore now, without ever budging out, not be able to linger as you call it in this comfortable crib, smoke and drink all day long or drink only if you don't like smoking, and sleep in one of them Windsor cheers as cosy as a bug in a rug, besides, won't you have me for a companion? "'No, no, I cannot, I will not endure it!' exclaimed Torrens, starting up from his chair, his countenance hideous with its workings, his nerves strung to the most painful state of tension, and a thousand frightful thoughts rushing in, with the speed and fury of a torrent upon his appalled soul. "'Hold your cursed jaw, you fool!' growled vitriol Bob, in a tone of sudden rage.
1: You will be heard in the
0: street, and—' "'I care not!' screamed torrens louder than before give me my share of the money let me depart be quiet i say spoke the ruffian in a still more irritated voice while he sprang from his seat on the barrel i shall do you a mischief i care not again cried torrens and again his tone grew still more piercing and shriekingly hysterical for he was wrought up to a state of utter despair give me my money i say give me fool be still exclaimed vitriol bob rushing around the table and grasping the old man by the throat but torrens inspired with a sudden strength that astonished the ruffian broke away from his grip and rushed toward the door crying murder murder damnation thundered bob and bounding after him he sprang on the old man with the fury and the force of a tiger murder again yelled the affrighted desperate torrens but in another instant he was dashed violently against the wall a moan succeeding his agonizing cry and he fell heavily upon the floor vitriol bob then jumped upon him and the attenuated form of the wretched old man writhed beneath the heavy feet of the murderous ruffin there was a faint and stifling appeal for mercy mercy but the miscreant silenced it with a ferocious stamp of his heel on the mouth of the dying man. And in a few moments, all was over. Vitriol Bob was now alone in the gloomy, cheerless place with a crushed and disfigured corpse of him whom he had literally trampled to death. But scarcely was the deed accomplished when a noise, as of gravel thrown from the street against the kitchen window, fell upon the ears of the murderer, whose countenance instantly expanded into an expression of grim delight at the well-known signal. Here's big Face Paul, he exclaimed hastily. Then he paused to listen again. At the expiration of about a minute, the signal was repeated, and Vitriol Bob, no longer harboring the slightest doubt, hurried up the stairs to open the street door. End of Section Sixty-Eight